Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today for the second part of a two-part story from South Wales. So if you haven't yet listened to last week's show, please do so before you listen to today's episode. If you recall, last week we went right back to 1973. If you recall, last week we went back to 1973 to look at the terrible murders of three 16-year-old young women, Sandra Newton, Pauline Floyd and Geraldine Hughes. Advances in DNA meant in the early 2000s, Operation Magnum identified local man Joseph Kappen as a key suspect through his son Paul's DNA. Paul was a minor car thief and only seven at the time of the murders, but the fact that his dad Joseph was on the whittle-down list of 100 prime suspects was surely beyond coincidence. But Joseph Kappen had been dead for 12 years. The task was now to investigate whether Joseph Kappen was the man they were looking for, and as we heard last week, further DNA was taken from Kappen's family, and then his body was exhumed to see for sure if he was the killer. Before we resume the story, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members, of this exclusive club. That is Sharon, Jonathan McCulley and David Roberts. Thank you so much for your support, which is so much appreciated. And a special huge shout out this week to Miriam Gooday. Be reassured, Miriam, that I will be rocking my leopard skin thong at the beach in the sun this week. I can ignore the jealous sniggers, as you and I both know just what sort of statement a man in leopard skin is making. I keep my blog updated with content. Please contact me if you'd like to write a guest piece. And I've written a very personal post this week about the murder of my friend Nick Lynch when I was at university. An event which shaped not just my interest in true crime, but also, without wishing to go over the top, to an extent it also shaped my life. If you get a chance, take a look at UKTrueCrime.com. So it was December 2002 when Kappen's body was exhumed. Let's set some context and take a quick look at the music we were listening to at this time. Blue, remember them? They butchered Elton John's Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word and this was somehow at number one. Did you buy it? A real scandal for so many reasons. But it also kept a true, hard-hitting rock classic with a strong message to us all from the top spot. It was of course the Cheeky Girls, with the Cheeky Song, brackets, Touch My Bum, close brackets. Those two, those two, those two tracks make Daniel Bedingfield at number four with If You're Not The One sound like a classic. Well, almost. In the US, Eminem was at number one with Lose Yourself, and he also had the best-selling album in Australia this year with The Eminem Show. In the news this month, I could hardly contain my excitement as the second Lord of the Rings film, The Two Yawns, oh sorry, Towers, 
premiered in New York. I know, I know, you love Lord of the Rings and I'm in a minority here. I know, I get it. LinkedIn was formed by Reid Hoffman and others in Mountain View, California. On the record, the BBC's flagship political programme finished after 14 years on air. And in UK true crime news, there were two major developments. Firstly, Shahid Nazir, Ahmed Ali Awan and Safraz Ali were convicted of the racist murder of Ross Parker in Peterborough. And Stuart Campbell, a 44-year-old builder from Grays in Essex, was found guilty of murdering his 15-year-old niece, Danielle Jones, 18 months earlier. It was revealed that Campbell, who was sentenced to life imprisonment, had a string of previous convictions, including keeping an underage girl at his home without lawful authority in 1989. So let's head back to South Wales and resume part two of our story. It was 2002 when detectives returned to Joseph Kappen's house and his ex-wife Christine and one daughter agreed to provide the DNA samples which would let the forensic experts recreate most of Kappen's DNA. Detective Bethel told how it took around two weeks before the call came through with the results. He said, I was sitting at my desk in the Pontadawi murder room when the call came through from the forensic scientist. He was going on about a partial match and the DNA banding. And I said, what are you telling me? He said, I think you've got your man. It was a strange feeling, very emotional. I don't get excited or overwhelmed, not after all these years, but I really did get a lump in my throat. Statistically, it was him. But murder inquiries, as we know, are not about the statistics, but about the cold, hard facts. I needed to be able to tell the victims' families that the man in the grave is the man who killed your daughters. He's a serial killer. I wanted to be bloody sure that he was in that grave, said Detective Bethel. And so they applied for Joseph Kappen to be exhumed 12 years after his burial. And this is where we began last week's episode with detectives by the graveside at Goitra Cemetery on the outskirts of Port Talbot, where Kappen shared a family grave with his stepfather, Clemente Poietti and his grandfather Joseph Herbert. Detectives were of course very mindful of the upset that this exhumation would cause to Kappen's wider family and they delayed the process as the initial date was the day after the 10th anniversary of the death of Kappen's stepfather. The family understandably wanted to lay flowers for him and he was buried above Kappen in the grave. Detectives were also very aware of the strong emotions aroused by the case locally and the effect this had on Joseph Kappen's ex-wife and his children. Indeed, when the news first came out that Kappen was the prime suspect, his ex-wife Christine said, Joe was a loving family man. He lived on the wrong side of the law and he was no angel. But he was no sex monster either. And we hear this a lot about killers, don't we? They do the most terrible things. But a lot of the time, they're just normal people like you and I. Christine said how her thoughts and the thoughts of her children were with the families of the murdered girls. And one of her daughters, Deborah, even left the following notes in the cemetery which said, Geraldine, Pauline, Sandra, always thinking of you and your families. I'm glad the bastard has finally been caught and a shame he's not here to face the consequences. I'll never forget what he took from you and your closest, and I'll feel for you always. 
Rest now in peace, Deb, this kiss. But whereas Christine, daughter Deborah and son Paul were happy to help the inquiry, his second daughter Beverly, the one he bonded most closely with, was much more reluctant to accept that her dad could have been guilty of the crimes. And it is, I think, hard not to have sympathy with her. As facing up to such a truth, it must be so daunting. But detectives are almost certain they had their man, but just needed that 100% certainty to provide closure for the families. It was three weeks before the results came back following that grisly evening at the graveside. But the DNA had been able to be extracted successfully, and the result was definitive. Joseph Kappen was the man who had murdered Sandra, Pauline and Geraldine. But although the team were pleased they were able to provide closure for the families and friends, the Operation Magnum team had mixed feelings. It was a bit of a letdown in many ways. To be honest, I was disappointed, said Detective Rees. It was such a letdown because you're not going to pull him in. It wasn't like arresting him and then taking him to a court of law. But Detective Bethel took a more upbeat view, saying, Operation Magnum, the hunt for the offender responsible for the Landarcy murders, is closed. We are not now looking for anyone else. He outlined the reality that many officers had practically lived the case over the years. I have spent more time and thought on this inquiry than any other, he said. And a detective sergeant from the original 1973 investigation told me that if he knew who was responsible, he would be able to die a happy man. And I think we forget sometimes that many of the police officers involved were forever affected by this case and spoke of it as the one they wanted to see solved more than any other. Detectives also praised the families of the three girls for never giving up hope, with Detective Bethel saying, They've lived a life of turmoil. Their lives stopped in 1973. Our thoughts are with them and we now hope they can finally find some peace. Geraldine's family still lived in Landarcy and her mum, Jean, said, You know there are evils out there, but you never believe it will touch on you and yours. When it does, it is a lifetime sentence of hell. We now hope we can close the book on the most horrific chapter of our lives. Her husband, Denver, added, We have relived what Geraldine must have gone through every night for nearly 30 years. Now we know for certain who killed our daughter, and we can finally find some peace. When we heard about the police breakthrough, we couldn't believe it at first. We were so shocked my wife and myself broke down and cried all night. We took flowers to Geraldine's grave and had a few quiet words with her, and we felt we'd finally put her to rest properly. It really is a wonderful thing that technology has moved on to give police these vital new tools of detection. The area has been tainted with these murders for years and hopefully the stigma hanging over it will be removed once and for all. But tragically, it was just two years later that Denver died suddenly, aged just 74. But at least when he did pass on, he knew who'd killed his daughter. And the other question all those involved were left asking was just who was this Joseph Kappen? And why had he killed three young girls and gone to his grave having got away with murder? The profile report given to the Operation Magnum team about the murderer was staggeringly accurate about Kappen. He was born in 1941 in Port Talbot, one of seven children. 
When his parents' marriage broke down, he lived with his stepdad before getting into trouble with the police for the first time as a 12-year-old, as predicted. He chose a life of petty crime with over 30 convictions for a variety of offences, including stealing cars, burglary and assault. And this meant he was constantly being sent to prison. When not in the slammer, he worked the doors as a bouncer or drove lorries and buses. But despite being in decent physical shape, he wasn't ever really committed to work or reliable, and instead he was often on the dole and earning cash in hand on the side. I think without doubt, Capham was a selfish man, much more interested in his own pleasures than providing financial stability for his family. One key point about him was his smoking. The victims of the Neath rapes and others who had come forward to say they'd suffered at his hands after his name was made public, all commented on how he smelt strongly of smoke. And it was revealed that he chewed tobacco and smoked 20 old Holman roll-ups a day, which in effect was what was probably prematurely killed him as he died of lung cancer in 1990 at just 48 years old. Detective Bethel spoke to a lot of people who'd known him when he was alive and said of him, Kappen was a very deep individual, a loner. Lots of people knew of him, but no one really, really knew him. He'd go to pubs two or three a night. He was always out. He'd even be on the darts teams, but he never really drank. One or two drinks a night, he just never wanted to lose his self-control. His wife Christine had told detectives that she was a very innocent and naive 17 when she met Kappen on the beachfront at Port Talbot. It was 1962 and no one had any money in those days, said Christine. You go into a cafe, get a coffee for sixpence and hang out. It was September when I met him in cold. The first thing that attracted me to him was that he bought me a hot chocolate to warm my hands. It was the first kind thing that anyone had ever done for me. And there is no doubting that at the time he was a good-looking man when she first met him. He was 6'1", tall, dark and handsome. He took pride in his body, worked out extensively. He had a car and in fact he loved everything about cars. Christine added, Joe was my first boyfriend. I didn't know about sex, men, women or anything. He was tender and affectionate. He was always obsessed with cars though. There were always five cars in bits in the front garden. He was always doing them up. In the summer of 1963, Christine found out she was pregnant and the couple married the next February. But it wasn't all romance and flowers and just 10 days later, Joe was in the slammer for breaking into houses and stealing from their gas meters. There was no honeymoon. Their daughter Deborah was born in April and then in August 1965, Kappen was allowed out of prison for the day to attend his grandfather Joe's funeral. Kappen always had a strong sex drive and Christine told how at the wake with a warder downstairs. He dragged Christine into an upstairs bedroom and had sex and he said romance was dead. This led to their second child Paul who was followed by a daughter Beverly in 1974. But family life was tough and Christine said Joe never bonded with the first two kids only with Beverly. We lived on the social As a family, we did not have two pence to rub together. I could not rely on him for money, as he was always in and out of jail. He did stupid things. He'd see some lead, pinch it and then get sacked. 
he didn't ever have proper money. If he was on the dole, he might give me an extra 20 quid, but that was it. He had a car which was his luxury, and often he'd take money out of my purse. And you won't be surprised to hear, I certainly wasn't, that he was a nasty, violent, controlling man with his wife and children. I thought it was natural for men to hit women, Christine continued. I thought all men were violent. He used to rape me every two weeks. It was against my will, I never wanted it. Joe would say, come on, come on, and then would insist on his conjugal rights. And it wasn't much fun for their neighbours in the tight-knit community. As the police were regularly called to the house, amid reports of loud arguments. We never had an argument unless I was drinking, said Christine. I'd play our one Shirley Bassey record over and over. If he dared tell me to turn it down, I'd start, and then he'd hit out. Kappen separated from Christine in the late 1970s and married a local bar worker, Sandra Grant, in 1981. Neighbours said that this was a real scandal at the time because Sandra Grant had been due to marry another man. But as we've heard from Kappen, he isn't the sort of man to let something like that stand in his way. The two then went to Scotland to marry before returning to live at nearby Baglan, just two miles from the Sandfields estate where he lived with Christine. In his final years, as the cancer really took hold, Kappen was wheelchair-bound and barely able to leave the house, a shadow of the physically domineering man he was before. Interestingly, the behavioural profile was highly accurate about how Kappen spent his free time. As he did, as the report predicted, individual pursuits such as rearing canaries, tropical fish and greyhounds. Must have been a bundle of laughs at parties, huh? One of the greyhounds that Kappen looked after did become a family pet after the children begged him. But there was no happy ending here. One day, as he was exercising the dog on the local beach, he showed that awful, cruel side to his personality, saying it was too old and slow, and he strangled the dog in front of his son Paul, who watched on in absolute horror as his beloved pet was killed. There were many such incidents of cruelty and the extreme levels of control he needed to have over his children as they grew up. And they were no stranger to the temper that Christine regularly experienced. His son, Paul, told how one time he and his sister Deborah, although not yet teenagers, incurred his wrath for eating fig rolls without his permission. For something so minor, he thought he would teach them a lesson. And even though it was approaching midnight and foul weather, with blustery wind and pouring rain, Kappen had the two young children on the streets searching for fig roll biscuits to replace the ones they'd eaten. The original murder inquiry became aware of Joseph Kappen following a tip-off from a retired Port Talbot detective, Elwyn Whedon. He knew of Kappen and didn't like what he saw and heard. He later said, Kappen was a bouncer in nightclubs. He was a man of violent disposition, a Fagin-like character who sought out boys and girls to commit crimes on his behalf. I first met him at a youth club when he threw a boy down some stairs. There were no injuries, but you felt Kappen was capable of anything, and I also knew he had an Austin 1100. This information was enough for detectives to visit him for the first time on October 13th, 1973 nearly a month after the murders had taken place. 
But what happened next reminds me of the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. As Kaplan told detectives, he had returned from Neath Fair at around 9.30pm on the Saturday and spent the rest of the evening, quote, looking after my canaries until about 10.45pm when myself and my wife went to bed. I got up the next morning at 10.30am. Christine had sat alongside her husband on the sofa during the interview and she supported his story. She said, I alibied him, but I always did whenever the police came knocking. He learned to do it without thinking. On such and such a night, he was with me, officer. I couldn't see him doing that. I cannot imagine him doing that to a child. I never saw any signs of an unusual interest in young girls. And with this alibi in place, Capham got away with it. But what his wife didn't know was that Capon was in fact very interested in young girls and working as a bouncer gave him the opportunity to mix with them. Detective Reese elaborated on this part of his personality saying it was his thrill to go with younger girls even when he was 43. If he had a girl he paraded her around for show to show off to his mates but in bed it was always regular sex, no violence, nothing out of the ordinary. And this lusting after young girls, it was the same when he was a bus driver, when he'd be very interested in the girls on his bus and hanging around the bus stop. And it was certainly not always a consensual experience he was looking for. Detective Bethel says he was a sexual predator. He always carried a weapon, a knife, and he had the ligature ready at Landasi. With him, there is always predatory intent combined with arrogance. He was cocky, confident, not afraid to carry out crimes in his own backyard where the risk of being identified was always high. And the team at Operation Magnum uncovered a trail of attacks on young girls ahead of his first murder victim, Sandra. They began in 1964 when he attacked a 15-year-old schoolgirl as they were walking together in the Sandfields estate, yeah, where he lived. As they entered a half-built house, He pushed her over and jumped on her. But when the girl screamed, he got up and he ran away. Remember, this is the very estate in which he lived. So he must have known the risks of carrying out these attacks. But was he so confident that his threats to keep quiet were enough? Or was it the arrogance of a man who had never got caught feeling he was invincible? Or was it a bit of both? Another attack attributed to Capon was when Two hitchhikers were attacked near Neath, just a few miles from Capon's home in Port Talbot, by a man in an Austin 1100. The driver didn't stop where the two girls wanted to get out, and instead pulled into a quiet, out-of-the-way spot. The driver stopped the car and told them, I know you want it. He then grabbed the girl in the front seat and groped her breasts, and when her friend in the back reached forward to help, the driver turned round and punched her fully in the face. Just imagine. As the terrified women tried to escape, they realised that the doors had been locked on the inside. But luckily, in these old-style cars with the locks you pushed down, one of the girls had long nails and just managed to raise the internal lock and so managed to escape. The noise of her screaming woke up the residents of a nearby house and the other girl too escaped as the car sped off into the night. These were very different times when, for the numerous social reasons that we find impossible to comprehend in 2019, 
Sometimes victims were reluctant to tell the authorities what had happened to them. And this attack was not reported as one of the girls thought she'd get into trouble with her dad, who was a church warden. Yeah, I know. It was another opportunity missed to stop Capen. But it was shortly after this that he took his offending to a new level when he abducted and murdered 16-year-old Sandra Newton. But even with the missed opportunities and false alibis, surely Capen should have been caught back in 1973. As is normally the case, it was the small details that allowed him to get away with murder. One was around the car, which surely was the absolute key to the original investigation. At the time, detectives put in the public domain that they had the tyre tracks from the murderer's car. Concerned by this news, Capon removed his tyres, and when detectives arrived at his home, the car was up on blocks, which he explained saying he'd done this the day after the murders. But police officers took his word for this, when in fact just cross-checking with the police stop-and-check logs would have shown that Capon's car was on the road a full week after the Landarcy killings. If this lie had been uncovered, would Capon have been convicted and faced trial? And what of other potential killings? It's almost impossible to believe that after three murders, over the course of three months in 1973, which he got away with, Capon didn't kill again. There are many cases all over the UK which Capon could be responsible for. After all, with his work as a bus and a lorry driver, they gave him the opportunity. But there are cases, especially in Humberside, where Capon used to live, in which he is potentially a suspect, but nothing concrete so far. But the crime where he's almost certainly to have been involved is the murder of 22-year-old Maureen Mulcully in February 1976. Maureen, whose children Penny, four, and one-year-old Sean were being looked after by her mum, made her way along Aberavon's Marsh Street on the night of her murder. She was wearing calf-length brown boots, a red and yellow striped jumper, a spotted navy skirt and a checked blouse. She had with her a coat with white fur lining. It was a chilly February evening as Maureen popped in at the home of her friend who lived near the Green Meadow pub and the friend called later to the pub for several flagons of Maureen's favourite tipple cider. It was a rare night of relaxing away from the children for Maureen. And later in the evening, Maureen had left her friend's house and she was seen at the pub just before closing time by a number of witnesses. Then at midnight... A neighbour of the pub, whose home overlooked a nearby patch of waste ground, reported hearing a disturbing noise. She said, I was in bed at midnight and I heard a petrifying scream. It was as if there was a fight and somebody was being hurt. Then I heard a girl say, oh my God. She didn't call police, as it was a Saturday night and fights outside the pub were not unusual. It was the next morning when a retired school caretaker took his bull terrier Bob for a walk. Yep, another dog walker. It was then that Maureen's lifeless body was discovered on the wasteland, he said. The body had not been concealed at all. The clothing had been disturbed because what attracted me was the sight of her bare thigh. I got within six feet of her. I couldn't see her face, but I could see that she was not moving at all, so I assumed she must be dead. And I called to a man at an allotment nearby to call the police. 
Although Maureen wasn't sexually assaulted, she was strangled, and the murder has all the hallmarks of Joseph Capham. There must be other attacks too, surely, that have not yet been revealed or discovered. But the fear is, are these the secrets that Joseph Capham still managed to retain as he was lowered into his grave for that second and final time? And will they remain with him? I wonder. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And please don't forget to look at uktruecrime.com for my recent article. And to support the show, patreon.com slash uktruecrime is your friend. You'll find bonus episodes, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, and used leopard skin thongs available. So on that bombshell, I'm off to take a walk on the wild side. Until we speak again next week, please take it easy, be kind, and of course, stay classy. Cheerio! With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.